Hello and welcome to a blazing summer edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Guy Barter, the Chief Horticulturist at the Royal Horticultural Society. As regular listeners will know, in these podcasts we bring you features exploring every aspect of gardening, plus seasonal advice from RHS experts throughout the year. And this edition is jam-packed with practical, topical advice about plant care, propagation and key jobs to tackle in the garden right now. Plus, as always, we have details of RHS gardening events around the UK. What I love about this time of year is the real work is over for the year and to a very large extent you can take it easy and enjoy the fruits of the preceding labour. It's true that mowing, watering, feeding, deadheading and harvesting still need to be done but with the days shortening, the nights cooling, the sun lower in the sky, plants are really growing much more slowly than they were in June and July and indeed they're under less stress. At last the tempo of the garden drops off and I can take what I feel is a well-deserved rest with my bulb catalogues, both printed and indeed online. The rich reds and oranges of heleniums and nipophias, that's red-hot pokers, are sensational this year, but for late summer flowers, penstemons are my favourite, especially the dark wine-coloured ones. In August, orange and yellow canna really shine in the sunny areas and in shady areas, White or red fuchsia flowers are particularly rewarding and pleasing. Tobacco flowers, that's Nicotiana, are thriving this year. All too often in rainy weather they succumb to downy mildew, but this year conditions are perfect. My favourite is Nicotiana sylvestris, which is white and its fragrance comes out at night. It's a wonderful plant to welcome you home of an evening. It's worth taking cuttings or indeed collecting seed of tender plants now so that you have strong subjects to carry over the winter. Sam Gallivan, who leads the Wisley Propagation Team, is going to talk about this later. Powdery mildew can be a menace in late summer and using fungicides to treat vulnerable plants such as phlox and sedum is usually worthwhile. Although slugs are less active, caterpillars are abundant at this season and indeed this year and they can very quickly defoliate plants. Usually picking off is sufficient, but when it's not, you can use approved insecticides. Fruit and vegetables are near their peak now, with berries such as blackberries, raspberries, plums and strawberries available. The first of the tomatoes and sweet corn are ready for picking, and of course more courgettes and the neighbours can usually be persuaded to accept. I've developed a taste for pickled vegetables, and I've been bottling up surplus cauliflowers, cucumbers, beetroot, radishes and turnips. There's always a surplus and the bottled ones are ready to eat in a few weeks and in the meantime look very pretty in their jars. First, your gardening questions. Each month, members of the Royal Horticultural Society Gardening Advice Team join us to answer some of the queries they've received recently. Members of the Royal Horticultural Society can get advice on any gardening problem for free all through the year from our expert team. Questions can be submitted by phone, post or email or in person at any of our flower shows. And podcast listeners can also email us your questions directly to podcast at rhs.org.uk. By the way, please do send us photos of your problematic plants. These are very useful to help the team answer your question. So let's join the team as they discuss some of the inquiries they've received recently. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt and I'm the Principal Horticultural Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello, I'm Helen Bostock and I'm Senior Horticultural Advisor. My name's Hayley Jones and I'm an entomologist. Our next question is from Mr Finch from London. 
Uh, my camellia didn't flower this year. It has been grown in a container for the last five years and up to the last year it was fine. What can I do to ensure it flowers next spring? I grow a couple of camellias in, in pots. They're so good for container growing and especially if you're like me and on a soil which isn't suitably acidic, um, it means we can still get to enjoy them. The other good thing about camellias is that they can um, tolerate relatively low light levels. So perhaps a, an east position or yeah, even a north facing position, you're still going to get a bit of display. Add on to that that you've got lovely evergreen glossy leaves and this wonderful range of flower color, white through the pinks to deep, deep sort of red. And, you know, they really are a plant that I think ends its position. So bit disappointing obviously for Mr Finch to have missed out on the flowers um, but I think there's lots of positives to be taken from this one. First of all it's not just a dud because um, we're told that it has flowered in the past so that's really good to know. So some simple tips for how to get it to reliably flower next spring. First of all, it's understanding when the flowers initiate. So the flower buds form on camellias and the same applies to rhododendrons as well. They, they form in late summer. So it's not a time of year when most of us are thinking about our camellias, but if we can spare them a thought in the sort of summer holidays, if we should get any dry spells, and I know it's been very wet, but if we get any prolonged dry spells, that's when watering is really critical because if the camellia goes dry at the roots and it's much more likely to go dry in a pot than it is in the ground, that will cause it to simply not initiate flower buds. Or it could go to the next step where the flower buds start to form and you can see those um, developing in late summer because they're quite distinctive. Instead of being just very slender, sort of small buds, they should be much more plumper and rounder, fatter. Um, and if, if those do form but start to go brown, again, that's another indication there's probably been a hiccup in the watering. So get out there every single day that it's dry and check check for watering. If it's dried um, on the surface of the compost, um, it needs to be watered. People are quite often worried that um, they haven't got any rainwater, they're in a hard water area and therefore, oh gosh, they can't water their camellias. But no don't worry, throw caution to the wind. Um, if you need to, use tap water. I once used it for several years on the trot because I didn't have any rainwater um, to hand and my camellias were absolutely fine. So do not, whatever you do, let your camellia go thirsty. Otherwise, that, that those flowers might be affected. Um, Lee, have you got any other tips to help with the flowering? Um, one of the things I do notice is that it's been in this container for five years. Um, now, compost, the sort of stuff that we um, grow plants in in containers, well, we call it compost because it will actually continue to break down even further. And as it does that over that two, three to this time, five years, um, it will become much denser. So we'll have less air in it and that layer will become much more prone to waterlogging as well. So basically it becomes much uh, less hospitable for roots for the plants to grow in so the, the results are often not as good so at this point um, we kind of need to get it out of its container if it's in a big container you'll want to tease out some of the old compost and feed back in down the sides some fresh ericaceous compost if it's already in quite a small container and can do with a bigger one that makes it easier because you can just uh, get the bigger container tease out some of the roots 
and then put it back in there with plenty of fresh compost around the side as well. That all sounds quite quite invasive. Uh, is that a job for the summer? Um, it's one really we can do as it starts going to the autumn. So I'd rather do it September while the, the roots are still growing, the ground's still relatively warm, so they'll get away. But the heat of summer will sort of uh, be tempered by that stage and therefore the, it should be a lot less stressful for the plant. So teasing out roots, what we want to do is get our fingers into the compost and really dig at it and pull it and almost rip some of those roots apart so that they're not going round and round in circles, but um, it gets them broken back and so they start to point back out. And those ends of those roots that attach the plant will then grow away more happily into the new compost. Right, so on to our next question from H. Osaka. And they say, the leaves on my Japanese maple are beginning to turn brown and crisp and look diseased. It is grown in a container. What do I need to do to treat it? So, well, they think it's diseased. Are they right? I don't think this is likely to be caused by disease because we know with Japanese maple, with the, the aces, that very commonly they get what we call leaf scorch. And this is simply where the, the tips back start to shrivel and go brown and you get this quite burnt appearance, hence that sort of scorched uh, name of the, the problem that we could talk about. Now, it is very common on aces, so you'll find often from... Um, once the leaves starts to come out in May, you'll get a little bit at the end, but then if it pro- progresses, it will get quite bad and lots of very brown leaves by the end of summer. So you tend to get that progression where you might not notice initially, but then you will later on. Rather than being caused by disease, usually it's down to growing conditions and weather conditions. Now, the split here really is that um, if we get lots of very hot Uh, conditions where it's very dry you'll get sort of wind as well you'll get the moisture being stripped from the leaves so you might find that the the tips go brown and then the leaves get even worse however obviously we're talking about moisture being stripped from the leaves if the plant doesn't have moisture in the first place this is going to happen much quicker so as this plant's in a container the first thing is to make sure that it's staying nice and evenly moist so most plants will need watering once a day at least and it's trying to keep that compost uh, nice and moist but never really soggy and so most days you'll be looking about half a watering can at least to sort of moisten up that compost and remember that because they have such a mop of foliage over the top of the pot if it rains it's very unlikely to get into that compost because it will literally act like a natural umbrella they don't like to dry out, do you think it would be helpful to stand the pot in a saucer filled with water? There's two things about this. Yes, so if it's drying out very quickly, it's worth putting it in a saucer. But um, remember that when we get into autumn, winter, it could mean that it's sitting in a a whole sort of saturated layer of compost that's being held there by that saucer. So if you do that, because it is drying out quickly, remember by the end of the season to take it away um, so that you're not having water sitting in there for certainly more than a few hours at most. Okay, so now we've got a a letter from uh, Mr Wong in southwest London. Um, The roots of my neighbour's lime tree are beginning to lift the block pavers in my drive. I want to remove the offending roots and have it relayed. I'm worried the roots are affecting my drains and foundations. What are the risks and what should I do about them? 
Oh, so a nice, easy question. <laughs> Not. <laughs> so, yeah, th this is something that, you know, can cause a bit of sleepless nights, can't it? Where people worry about um, arteries damaging property, damaging drives or pathways and things like that. Um, so I think this is something we commonly encounter. And in many cases, um, it's not quite as worrying as it might first seem. For this, we probably need to separate out two different types of potential damage from this neighbor's uh, lime tree. The first type of damage is very localized, and that's this business of the, the roots expanding out into the soil as they grow like a branch would do above ground level they they get thicker in girth and that pressure is enough to lift non-load bearing structures like uh, pavements or uh, paving on a patio or, or driveways so it's very localized sort of expansion that's then going to put pressure onto that um, uh, material and if it's got nowhere to go, obviously that can mean that the pavers lift or or uh, sort of maybe tarmac uh, cracks and breaks. What can we do about, about that? Well, first of all, it is the roots that are directly causing this. So there is scope, uh, especially in a well-established tree, to maybe lose some of those roots without overall affecting the health of the tree. And we do have to bear in mind that any damage we do to a tree that's not on our property, so this is their neighbor's tree, we are liable for damage. So we don't want to do anything too major, but the loss of some of the smaller roots that are coming through into to their side, this could, these could be severed, the, the, the roots are cut off, um, and the, the repairs made to whatever the drive or the paving is. Um, there's no perfect time of year to do this, so I think um, it, I would get on and, and, and do this now. Of course, roots like branches, they don't just stop growing. We talked about teasing out roots in order to stimulate roots to regrow. So even big tree roots will, will regrow when they're cut. So what we don't want to happen is for those to just come straight back into the area underneath our repair drive. The way to do that is after cutting them, dig down a little bit of a trench along um, either your boundary line with your neighbour or within your garden, perhaps along the edge of your driveway, and to put in what's called a root barrier. These can be bought online um, and <clears throat> you fit that vertically down into your trench and that will stop the root as it meets the barrier from regrowing back into, into the area. I said there were two types of damage caused here. Obviously, um, this person's rather worried about their foundations on their drains. Lee, do you, can you perhaps explain a little bit about how that those damages can uh, happen from tree roots as well? Okay. I Actually, these probably fall into two groups on their own, don't they? Because uh, we've got drains and foundations. So for drains, it's usually about the roots getting in and filling and blocking the pipes. Um, obviously, if you've got newer, continuous plastic pipes, there's very little way they're going to do that. But if you've got an older property with clay pipes that are just basically slotted together, it is easier for them to get into that. Um, what they're basically trying to do is find water. Now, this is a problem that if you imagine all the trees around um, all our towns and cities, isn't really a huge problem, but it can happen. And this is the thing, it's very difficult to say which tree will affect a drain and which won't. 
Proximity obviously means that there's more routes potentially nearby that might go searching for that water inside the pipes. Um, so the closer potentially that there might be more risk. But it's one really to keep an eye on and panic um, because if you try and keep every route away from it, it, it's almost impossible. For foundations, there's a couple of things we need to bear in mind. One, watch the age of your house. If it's post Second World War, you're going to have much stronger foundations. So that reduces your risk. What's the type of your soil? If it's sandy, i.e. not clay, then um, you won't have so many problems. Again, it's a lower risk. That's because it's the clay types that with the water content expand and contract. So if the roots draw water out of them, uh, the, the basically the soil gets smaller and then sinks. And you might hear about the word subsidence. That's basically where the, the clay soil has shrunk away from the foundations and the house has perhaps tilted a bit and a crack opened up. Now, again, that's based on clay soils. Then there's the type of tree. So we do know that some trees are higher risk than others. Um, I believe lime kind of falls into the middle risk group. Some of the higher risk groups would be things like willow and oak. Some of the, the less risky groups would be things like the prunus and malus, so crab apples and um, the um, cherries as well. So basically what we're trying to do is think about what's the risk. So if you're starting to say, I'm a very old property, which is high risk, I'm on a very heavy clay soil, which is high risk, and then a, a tree that is um, one that's known to cause damage, then you, you might worry. But if it's the opposite end, which, um, you know, we don't know about the soil type here, but hopefully it will be a more sandy type, might be very little to worry about. Any problems at all in your thinking, what should I do? You can always get out a consultant to come and have a look. It tends to fall into two groups again, so you can get a tree specialist, and if you go to the Arboricultural Association's website, you can pop in your postcode and get someone out to have a look at the tree. But if you're worried about the house, you'll need a structural surveyor. So basically, don't panic. Overall, we have to remember that I think the statistics are about 1% of trees in our towns and cities are the ones causing potential problems. So we're talking very, very small amounts. And if we think about all the good things they do, clean the air, capture carbon, coolers in summer, stop the rainwater getting to the ground so quickly, so reducing flooding, filtering the pollution. Those are all services that they're providing. So we have to balance off these benefits against these very small amounts of negatives. So it's be aware, take appropriate action, but don't panic. And it, probably what it's also worth saying is that um, we know that these are um, rather complicated matters and mm. they do cause people worry so if people would like to go to the RHS website we've got a, a whole page on trees near buildings which talks about whether you're the tree owner or whether you're the trees in your neighboring property or the the things steps that you might like to take uh, question and answers are, are, are on there. The RHS advice team as well as expert advice, another benefit of membership is free entry to all four RHS gardens. Here's a few of the attractions and events available to all members and non-members in the next few weeks. Learn all about flower and plant photography at Harlow Carp on the 5th of September with a one-day masterclass. Booking is essential and discounted places are available for RHS members. 
Get Arty at Hyde Hall between the 26th and 29th of August at our Contemporary Craft Fair. This year there will be more than 80 exhibitors, free with normal garden entry. Join us at Rosemore for the Plant Heritage Late Summer Plant Fair on 28 August. There will be a wide variety of rare and unusual trees, shrubs and perennials from local nurseries on display and for sale. And if your little ones are keen for something to do at the tail end of the summer holidays, bring them to Wisley for edible plant sculpture on the 23rd of August. This is part of our programme of rocket science events for children across all RHS gardens during the school break. Full details of all events and many more are on our website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash event search. While many people are relaxing at home in the garden this month, just like I am, the horticultural teams here at Wisley are still hard at work. Looking after this size of garden and keeping it looking good is a full-time job for all the teams. Let's go outside and hear about some of the key jobs they're tackling at the moment. Hello, it's Bernard from The Orchard at Wisley in Surrey. You can hear the gentle hum of our mower as it trundles round the orchard on this beautiful August day. And we will continue with this sort of mowing regime now um, right through until we start um, harvesting proper, um, so into September and October. Um, but we like to keep the grass down because it's there's quite a lot of competition there moisture wise for our bigger older trees and it's easier for us to clear up the fallen apples and um, gather that in as well so we keep the grass down so the work's always going on there's always some sort of general maintenance going on and indeed um, through August and September this is the sort of work that we're doing while we're waiting for our apples to ripen We've had a few, and I was actually doing a picking list this morning, and uh, our pickers were out yesterday picking some of the earlier varieties. Discovery's just coming along now. Um, the fruit that are on the top of the trees are really getting some lovely colour and nice flavour. Um, it's one of the, it's it's got a wonderful perfumey flavour. It's one of the I think it's probably one of the first ones that really hits the back of your throat. When you're picking apples, they should come away very easily. You should be able to almost just roll them off the tree if you cut your hand round the apple um, and just fold it back on itself. It should fall off very easily. If you're tugging, it's not ready to come. When you're looking for apples, if you don't know whether they're ripe or not, first indications are often that there are a lot falling off the tree. You'll get this sort of June and July, of course, when the apples are small. But um, when they start to ripen, the bigger apples start to fall off. And it's not always a signal that um, you dive in and pick everything. We'll write on our picking lists, ripest. So if you're looking at fruit that's got some colour, you'll often find that the fruit at the top of the tree or on the sunny side will have a lot more colour. So they're the ones that come off first and gradually... Um, the fruit on the sort of uh, on the shady side of the tree and under on the undersides they will be the last to pick and in some cases we miss them um, so they're the ones that will get picked up later and used for cider and juice so the greener apples are harder to tell you've just got to be vigilant and keep trying keep tasting them and certainly 
um, this morning the apples that I've tasted you there were um, sweeter ones at the top and very sharp at the bottom so you know you want a few more days of this lovely sunshine and then uh, off you go and gradually this process continues now and it becomes more and more obvious and it will get to a point where we will just be able to say pick the lot uh, so it's a bit hit and miss if you know that if you know what the varieties look like or are supposed to look like it's a terrific help to don't throw away the labels when you buy apples or no way you can look them up on in books and online and you'll see what they're supposed to look like when they're ripe and um, if yours is a red apple and it's only got a few stripes on it then you know you've got to leave it a bit longer yet so it's a little bit of trial and error but it's quite good fun as well For the propagation team, led by Sam Gallivan, this is one of the busiest times of the year as it's the moment to propagate tender perennials. My name is Sam Gallivan and I'm the team leader of the propagation team at Wisley. And at the moment we are just outside our glass houses, behind the scenes, um, away from the gardens. My team produce plants for the garden. We don't produce plants for the plant centre itself, just for the gardens. Sometimes we do the other gardens as well, so Rosemore, Hyde Hall, Harlow Carr. Um, so, and we produce about 100,000 plants a year for all different elements from seeds right the way through to grafted material. This time of year we are producing bedding or winter bedding for one of the teams uh, to put in to give a little bit of colour early spring next year and also we are producing the tender perennials uh, to go out to display again next year. This is something that we repeat year after year. Tender perennials, they're plants that generally in their native habitats would survive outside all year round but for us because they, they won't survive in the wet and the frost that we have they would, they would die, we class them as a tender perennial. So we have to repropagate them every year so that they can have the displays every year. And also they change, the displays change every year as well so we, we like to chop and change them a little bit. Salvias. Uh, most people know all the different sorts of pretty coloured salvias from yellows through to blues, purples. Um, also we'll have marguerites, um, osteosperms. They are the daisy flower, the ones that you'll see out, the pretty daisy flowers. Um, and also we will do uh, penstemons, they're very very popular at the moment. And again a broad range of colours of those and also the verbena, the, the little spreading ones that you'll see out there. So a broad range. Probably one of the easiest things to propagate, tender perennials in general. Most of them either this time of year or you can do them in spring if you miss your, miss your timings. Uh, very simple, you're just looking at a um, semi-ripe or soft cutting um, about the length of um, sort of like a knife blade. You keep the tip in as long as there's no flower and they generally and readily root within two to three weeks. We do have a little bit of base heat to help us along, but you don't need that. On a windowsill in a small pot covered with a little plastic bag, two or three weeks and you'll have roots on it. We just add a little bit of um, slow release uh, feed in the compost. A very, very low rate this time of year. You don't want them to grow too fast, but generally very, very simple to grow, very easy to grow. And as long as you can keep them protected from the frosts over winter, in a little greenhouse, cover them with fleece if you need to. They will grow on and be ready for you next spring to put out. A lot of people put them into their propagators or put them on their windowsills and then forget about them. 
Whenever you do any form of propagation, you need to make sure that you check them on a daily basis. If you have them in a propagator or a polythene bag over the top, they will perspire, so they create a lot of moisture, so that needs to be aired at least once a day, if not twice when it's really warm. Some people, when they have um, heated propagators, they turn the heat on below and think that's all they need to do, but sometimes it can actually be too hot, and especially with the summer we're having. So it is better to turn it off during the day, turn it on during the night if they can, just to keep the, the temperature steady. But ambient temperature at the moment is, is ample to do a lot of propagation. I think if you are getting into propagation and doing more and more, especially if you're interested in doing more technical cuttings, if you're looking at doing more semi-ripe, sort of shrubby cuttings, a little bit of heat helps. And also if you're interested in doing some of the different seed raised materials as well, um, some of the things like uh, begonias, um, impatiens, um, and even things like bananas you can get seed off, um, then they will need higher temperatures. So you're looking at 21 to 25 degrees. So having a little bit of base heat is what we call it, will help immensely in that. Sam Gallivan, leader of the propagation team. Remember, you can find more information on all aspects of gardening techniques on the advice pages of our website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. So that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. For now, from me, Guy Barter and all here at Wisley, goodbye. <laughs>